Amen. Amen. So as I was at that small little black church, I, I told them to, to do something that I don't know if y'all do here, so I'm going to ask y'all to do it. So I want you to turn to your neighbor, and I want you to say this. This message, turn to your neighbor, say, this message is for everybody, but the blessing is for the good and faithful. Oh, okay. See, I'm schooling y'all. Y'all, I see some of y'all are confused. We're going to do it again. Go turn to your other neighbor and say, this message is for everybody, but the blessing is for the good and faithful. All right. All right. Today, uh, we get the pleasure of going to Matthew 25. And in Matthew 25, I believe that there's a beautiful message that the Lord gives us. Uh, especially towards the end of that. And we'll, 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 we'll go through a lot of that. But if you had to pinpoint a specific uh, a thing that, that Christ is talking about in, in our pericope today, uh, I think we can deal with the, the idea of stewardship. That, that Christ is specifically zeroing in on stewardship. And what's funny is when I was reading this text one time, uh, I, I was sitting down and I was, I don't really usually watch the news a lot, but, but the news was on and I, I got this message about a man named Jeff Bezos. I don't know if y'all know who he is, but he's the guy who owns Amazon. He's loaded. He has a lot of money. So, so the news was that Jeff Bezos, who, being one of the richest men in America, was soon to fall down the Forbes list uh, because he had some infidelity. Right. And I thought, man, that's a message right there that, that you're, the things that you do in your life, that the, the flaws in your character and the mistakes that you make can impact the fortune that you have. That's a message. Right. But but then as I was looking at it, they posted a list, the, the top five in the Forbes list. And I zeroed in on the first person and I zeroed in on the top three and I zeroed in on the top five and I noticed something. That in the top five, in the top three, and of course the, the, the top one, uh, there was only one person who was unique on that list. And the person who was unique on that list to me was a man named Warren Buffett. Y'all know who Warren Buffett is? Now, what's unique about Warren Buffett being on the Forbes list is this. Every other person in the top five, in the top three, and maybe even the top ten has done something to create their fortune. They've done something to produce their fortune. They've acquired something that would give them their fortune. Warren Buffett is the only person on that list in the top three, the top five, and maybe even the top ten who did nothing to create, to produce, or acquire. The only thing he did was used what he already had. Warren Buffett started his investing when he was 16 years old. He, he took money that he earned on a, on a paper route. And he, he started investing this, right? And over and over, he would invest, invest, invest money that he'd already had. He didn't come up with MySpace or Facebook or, or Microsoft or anything like that. All he did was invested what he already had. This man is worth $65 billion. I just wish he would give it to church planting. <laughs> and, and in an interview of Warren Buffett, on a documentary they're doing on HBO, they asked him, they said, hey, do you have any regrets about your investment career? And it's an 80-plus-year-old man. And he, he's, you know, looking forward to the future, even though he's an older man. And he said, man... I have plenty of regrets. He started listing them off. And, and many of the regrets that he had 
were not things that he invested in that went wrong. The majority of the the things that he regretted were the investments he never made. It wasn't his activity that kept him up at night. It, It wasn't the things that he did wrong that kept him up at night. It was his inactivity. It was the possibility of what could have happened. Uh, The Google opportunity to invest that he didn't go into or or the Facebook opportunity to invest. All these opportunities to to grow and make millions and, and just maximize what he already had. That's what kept him up at night. And for some of us, it's not the activity of our lives that keep us up at night. It's not the mistakes we've made that keep us up. It's not the bad decisions. It's the what ifs. It's our inactivity. And I think Jesus is doing something amazing in this passage. Because yes, he's talking about stewardship. But in that, he's also talking about idleness. And in life, our biggest regrets are often not focused on what we did, but what we wish we had done. And our idleness is usually a sign of our lack of security, our lack of confidence, our lack of assurance, and our lack of clear vision. So if you're idle, you're likely not walking with God. But we'll see more about that in the text. And as Jesus shares what we call the parable of the talents, as he shares this with his disciples, that main focus isn't about money. It really isn't about talent or ability. It's really not about anything tangible. It's actually a warning against idleness. And that warning comes with the illustration about stewardship. And, and in that illustration, I believe that Christ is asking us and answering a, a particular question, and it's this. What will you do with what God has given you. What will you do with what God has given you? If you don't believe me, let's go to the text. Um, Let's go to the text. So to to recap the text, and you can follow me if you have your Bibles open. This is what happens. See, um, I'm, I'm glad that you mentioned verse 13 and 14. Because most people do start this parable at verse 14. And Jesus' telling of the parable starts at verse 14. But the stage is set in verse 13. Now, if, matter of fact, if you zoom out and look all through Matthew 25, let me tell you what's about to happen. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's spending his last moments with those who are his followers, his disciples. He's giving them instructions. He, he's trying to encourage them. He's trying to strengthen them, but he's also giving him, them warnings. He's telling them what they should not do and what they should look out for. In verse 13, Verse 13 sets the stage for that. It says, watch therefore, for you neither know the day nor the hour. Jesus is highlighting the need for us to live our days deliberately. And it's so easy for us to to move away from that. I mean, like, let's just think about 2,000 years later. Are you living every single day as if Jesus could come back any moment? Are you living every single day as if you don't know the time nor the hour and that he could come upon you just like a thief in the night? Or are you taking every day as it comes? You're leaving things for the next day. You're not really focused on Christ's return. This is what he's warning them about. He's saying, hey, this might not be 10 days later or 40 days later. It may not be four four years later or 400 years later. And you still should watch out 
because you never know when I'm going to return. But then he goes to tell this story. He, he starts with this man who wants to go on a journey. Why he's going on a journey? We don't know. We have no clue. But Jesus says this man is going on a journey. Now, Luke would say that this man was a noble man, which means he's a man of stature, a man of means. But Matthew wouldn't tell us that. Matthew would just say that he's a man. And later on, we would see that the servants of this man would call him master. And as he prepared to go away from his compound, he calls together three of his servants. And he entrusts his servants with his riches. Now notice that the team, I say that he, he pays them what they earned. Notice that the text does not say that he blessed them with a gift. Notice that the text does not say that he gave away everything he had. The text says that he entrusts his servants with his riches. The text also uh, doesn't say that he gave them what they deserved. Jesus, Jesus says that the master entrusts them with his riches, and he uses this Greek word, uh, peter, per, paradidumi. Paradidumi. I have to do my, my mouth like that because, because I'm from the South, and I, I pronounce stuff really crazy sometimes. But paradidumi. And paradidomy simply means this, that Jesus handed something over for someone else to manage. Not to have, but to manage. So, so the master, he, he paradidomied five talents to one servant. He paradidomied two talents to another servant. He paradidomied one talent to another servant. And he's saying to all of them, here, I'm giving this to you to manage, not to have. To manage. And that's, that's, a, that's actually really amazing because what happens is we can read our English text and we read this and we say, oh, he, 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 he gave them talents. And I've heard people preach this and, and I think they're, they're walking out of the lines a little bit because they say, hey, this is a message about your talent. This is a message about what God gives you internally that no one else has, right? You know, like, these guys, they, they have talent. They're like up there playing and singing. I can't do any of that, right? But, but it's actually not about our talent. Because in the text, if it, the, the first century or second century hearer of this, when they heard talent, they would have known that that word actually pertains to a measurement of silver. It's about 75 pounds of silver. 75 pounds of silver equates to about 6,000 denarii. If you know your Bibles, a, a denarii is a day's wage at work. That's it. A, one denarii, a day's wage at work. So to bring this into 2019, right, the average American makes about $44,000 a year. I'm not average. I'm below average. Just letting y'all know. But the, according to statistics, the average American makes about $44,000 per year. You break that down to day-by-day day wages, that's about $171 per day. You multiply that by 6,000, all of us, all of us who got a talent will be walking out of here with a little over a million dollars. So here this master is giving a million to one, giving two million to another, giving five million to another, and he's saying manage that. 
Now, what's beautiful about this is we can create euphemisms and, and, and all kinds of pictures for all of this, but the truth of the matter is it, it reassures us that our master is a rich master, that God is not a cheap master. And it also emphasizes to us that money actually does matter, that there's a theology that wants you to be broke so that you don't fall into the temptations of the rich, the, what, what can happen to rich people. And that's wrong. That Jesus and God has no problem with your money. He's just saying you should do something with your money that honors him. Let's keep, keep rolling. But I want y'all to hear that. Millions of dollars the master has enriched and entrusted to them. But there's another part of the text that's important. It says that he entrusted the riches based off of their ability. He entrusted riches based off of their ability. And that's also a beautiful reminder that God sees your ability. He knows what you will do and what you won't. He's designed you like that for a reason. And he will entrust even if you are the one who will only get one. Because even that one is worth a lot. That he would entrust plentiful to you. Beautiful things to remember. And in the end, that question. If we were to end the parable there, before going to the master coming back, I'm sure that the disciples would have had a question. Tell us what they did with the money. What did they do with what the master gave them? And Jesus is like looking at the disciples. I can imagine as he's telling this, say, what would you do with what I'm about to give you? And I ask that same question. What are you doing with what God has already given you? Because he's a rich master. And, and the first thing that we can see for sure is that in our first point, when we're thinking about stewardship and, and how we're going to do something with what the Lord has given us, the first thing we have to do is acknowledge that everything that is given is God's. Everything that's given is God's. Now, I didn't leave a word out of that. Some people want to say everything that's given is from God. And yes, that's true. But not only is everything that's given from God, but everything that's given belongs to God. You know that? Every single thing you have belongs to God. Everything. Think about this story. The story starts with a master, right? The master calls the master servants. The master calls the master servants to entrust the master's riches. The master is there. Everything belongs to the master. One of the greatest mistakes that we can make is not acknowledging how clear God is in showing us that everything is his. When we go about acting like the things of our lives belong to us, the things in our bank account, the things in our home and our trust, our family, our kids, the things that he's allowed us to produce. When we go along in life and act like those things are our own and not his, we're actually going against what he's outlined for, for, for us. It's all God's. It's all God's. 
We see this in the text. Psalm 89, it says that the heavens are yours, the earth is yours, the world and everything it contains is yours. Paul was inspired by this psalm when he's writing to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 10. And he tells them the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. And then God, I I think he kind of, if I was saying it on the street, I'd say God had a little swagger. Because in Psalm 50, these words are written. And the psalmist writes it like this. And he's, he's writing from the standpoint of God. I believe that God gave him this revelation on purpose. And he writes this. For if I were hungry, I would not tell you because the earth is mine and all that's within. We have a powerful God. A rich God. And a God who literally owns everything. It's all God's. And I know some people are thinking, well, what about God? What about gifts? Does God not give us gifts for us to enjoy? And I would say to you, yes, he, he does give you gifts. He does give us gifts. He does give us things that we can enjoy. But that doesn't mean we have ownership. I talk to my kids about that every day. You can watch this TV as much as you want. But guess what? It's mine. We can watch Paw Patrol for six hours in a row. But guess what? That's daddy's TV. And and, and we're doing the same thing in our lives. We're treating our bodies as if we can enjoy everything in this world and forgetting that God owns that body, that he gave it to us to enjoy his creation. But we act as if we own it. (laughs) It's not yours. It's God's. Your family, this is where we see it the most. Your kids are running wild, or, or, or maybe they're not. Maybe they're beautiful, wonderful, blessed kids who do everything perfectly, and you love them to death. And then when, when drama or, or trauma comes into your life, the first thing we do is call out to God and say, why are you doing this to mine? God saying, no, that is mine before it was yours. I'm allowing you to enjoy it. I'm allowing you to care for it, but it's all God's. That we, we see this again in the scripture, Leviticus 25, after, after God has delivered his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea, uh, they've wandered for years. He finally puts them in their place. He says, okay, you're in your place, but there's some people who've been camping out here. I need you to push them on out of here. I'll give you some help while you do that. And then he's dividing the land amongst all of the clans and all of the people, right? And then uh, amongst those, those clans and those families, they divide it in, in even smaller pieces. And all of them can say, this is ours. This is what the Lord has given us. This is a celebration. We went from slavery to being blessed. But in Leviticus 25, you know what it says? It says that no Israelite can sell their land. Why? Because in verse 10, it says it belongs to God. Everything. Every single thing. Even your soul belongs to God. I, I, I spent some time in Memphis, and Memphis is a great spot because uh, barbecue, period. I can end my sentence there. <sighs> but the only, the only thing better than barbecue that starts with a B in Memphis is the blues. I love the blues. I don't know about y'all, but I love the blues. And, and in Memphis, you always hear this story about Robert Johnson. And apparently, Robert Johnson was a man who, who kind of is the godfather of blues, 
Um, he was a, uh, a, a former, he was out of a slave family, and he was walking the roads of Mississippi, and he was trying to get to Clarksdale, Mississippi. And the, the fable is um, that, that Satan himself approached Robert Johnson, and, and they had an exchange. And Robert Johnson said, I will give you my soul if you teach me how to play guitar, or if you give me the ability to play guitar. And, and the fable is that Robert Johnson was so good at playing the blues because he sold his soul to the devil. And every time I hear that story, I laugh. Because I'm like... Ezekiel 18.4 says that every living soul belongs to God. So he couldn't even, he couldn't even do that. You can't, listen, you can't even give yourself over without acknowledging the fact that God owns everything. That even those who are lost in this world, even those who, who will never be able to celebrate in the way that we do, God even claims ownership of them. His fingerprint is them. His, his ownership mark is on all. He owns it all. The gifts of life, the gifts of opportunity, time, treasure, talent, it all belongs to God. And when you know that these things belong to God, guess what? You treat them a little bit better, don't you? I remember my first car. It was a, a Toyota Camry, 1998. It was a beautiful green car. And I remember my dad handed me the keys, and he said these words, hey, this is our car. And I was like, our car? <laughs> He's like, yeah, this is our car. Guess what? I'm, I paid for the car. I'm paying for the insurance on the car. I keep up the maintenance on our car. This is our car. I will allow you to use it, but this is our car. And you know what happened? As I would ride down and do all the things I did as a teenager, when I ate McDonald's, before I pulled up at home, I stopped and threw all of that trash out. If, if I had somebody in the passenger side, I was like, hey, hey, bro, put that seat back where you found it. Why? Because it's not my car. My dad allows me to use it, but I had to treat it a little bit better because it wasn't mine. I got to enjoy it. I got to, to use it all the time. I got to, to do all kinds of good things with it. And, and some of us are, are, are experiencing that right now. That in our career, we're, we're not thinking about the fact that God gave you that career. And that you could be using that career or you should treat that career as if God gave it to you. Or God gave you your family or your spouse, your money. Are you treating your money like it's God's or are you acting like it's not God's at all? And we, we see this clearly in the text with the two servants, right? The one with the five talents. It, the scripture says that he went and traded these talents. And we can guess that he did it immediately. And, and the one with two talents, he did the same exact thing. But the one with one talent, he made excuses. He acted as if he had not a responsibility to do that. He instead, the scripture says, buried his talent. And, and I just take time. I slow down when I hear that. Because to bury something, you have to dig. And you have to work. And you're likely going to sweat. Just so you can drop this fortune that God gave you and then cover it up with dirt. 
so many of us are living that way. Where we would rather throw dirt on the fortune that God gave us than to even work to try to make it look like anything at all. What are we throwing dirt on in our lives? What are we, what are we throwing dirt on, whether it be dirt that comes from our mouth, speaking negatively about what God has given us, or, or keeping up rumors that are going around, talking down to our spouse or our kids? That's throwing dirt on your fortune. This is what that servant did. But the other two, they did... What's our second point? Which they faithfully stewarded what he had entrusted. The climax of the parable is this. The climax of the parable is not the end of the parable. The climax of the parable is the return of the master. And I got to stop and say hallelujah right there. Because that's going to be the climax of our story as well. That there's going to be a, a huge celebration in this all of eternity, but the climax that we're waiting for in this story is the master's return. I can just imagine being one of those, those faithful servants, and you see your master walking up in the midst, and, and you walk to the front, and you're ready for him to walk in, because you know that you've done something for that master to be proud of. And it's not your actions. It's the fact that you can give something back to the master. It's the fact that you know when the master is here, then there's wholeness. Then the reason why you're in the house makes sense. For all of life, we're going to struggle with the fact that, that us being here and God feeling like he's far off does not make sense. But when the master returns, you'll know you have full knowledge. This is why he had me here. This is why I struggled in this way. This is why I lost those things. When the master returns, it will not matter. You just be happy that the master is there. And when the master returns, guess what? It's not payday, it's reckoning day. It's not payday, it's collection day. That the master would come to get back what's his. And he sees, he sees two servants. And he, he probably said, I'm imagining, I'm adding, adding paint to this whole thing, right? I can just imagine, like, the, the dude with the father's like, come on, ask me what I got. Ask me what I got. Come on, come on. And the two like, yeah, I got something too. I got something too. And the one's like way over here like, oh, you back? I ain't even know you pulled up. I ain't even see you come. Like, he's making excuses. But, but the ones that invested well are happy. They're happy. And they can go to the master and clearly say, you gave me five. I invested that five and here's another five. And the master says, well done. And another one says, you gave me two. I invested that two. Here's another two for you. Not for me, for you. And, and Jesus is not like the average, what I call street entrepreneur. He's not asking you to bring a little bit more and then he gives you a cut. No. He, he's saying all that you bring back is mine as well. You double the profits. Praise me. That's what he's saying, not me. He said, praise God. Praise me. He's not looking to like give us a cut. What is he going to give us a cut for? We're there to serve him. And this is what happens with these two. They give theirs and this shows something that's important, something for us to, to write down and to remember, that stewardship is active and it's intentional. 
that these uh, servants, they did some active things and some intentional things to see something grow that the Lord had given them. And I say to you, as you are holding God's fortune, are you being active with it? Are you being intentional with it? Do you have a plan for it? I remember talking to a guy about our finance. Finances are the easy way because they're numbers, right? You can clearly see, like, anybody ever heard somebody say, like, if you want to see what somebody loves, just look at their bank statement. It used to be look at their checkbook, but nobody has a checkbook anymore. Open your mobile app, and I can tell you what you care about. I can tell what you're intentional about. But I can also tell what you're idle, what you're idle about. I can tell what idleness affects you. If you look at mine, I'll be completely honest. If you look at mine, you're like, yo, he's very unintentional about how he spends his money at uh, 7-Eleven. Like, he has no plan for that. <laughs> and, and this is a good thing for us to embrace because a lot of times we want to run away from rules and structures and things of that nature. But, but intentionality is something that we see in the text. That when God gives instructions, he gives them with details, doesn't he? A lot of the times. A lot of the times he, he gives us formulas for how to see something happen. So I encourage you, go and make a plan for how you're going to invest your money. Not just the money that, that you are going to put away for your retirement or for your kids to have money, and we'll have another sermon about that later. But your money that's going into God's kingdom, do you have a plan for that? Or do you just throw it in the offering basket? The money that you're giving towards the building of God's kingdom. Have you sat down and talked to your wife, your husband, your spouse, your kids about your plan for that? Or have you just said, oh, I'll just write a check here and there? Like, I'm, I, I'm, I, look, if you want to give to Identity Church, you could just write a check. I don't care. But there's something about what God is doing in your life when you make a plan to expand the wealth that he's given you. There's something spiritual that happens. Now, I'm not saying you're going to level up in heaven. I'm just saying that it shows something about what God has done in your life, and it shows something about these two, these two servants, that they actually cared about not just the fortune, but the holder of the fortune. It showed that they, they didn't just care about holding the riches, but they cared about the master. And, and the way we spend, the way we invest, whether it be our time, our treasure, our talent, shows what we really care about the master. And if we, we look at what they did in being active and intentional, we can see three high points. That they, that they were faithfully stewarding with diligence, expectancy, and hope. Diligence, expectancy, and hope. Stewardship is a duty. And I call stewardship a duty because it has these two factors. There's a date of completion and there's a graded performance. Date, date of completion and a graded performance. And these three things help them to be ready when the Lord came back. The first one is diligence. The first two servants, they, they didn't just throw their fortunes uh, to be managed some crazy way, but we can see that they were intentional about that. And not only intentional, but diligent. They did not know the day that the, the master was coming back. So they got right to it. What's the opposite of this? Being lazy. 
Just saying, oh man, when I when it you know my account grows a little bit, then I'll come up with a plan for it. When I have a couple more children, then we'll figure out whether we're gonna like do homeschool or Christian school or private school or uh, whatever school. When I when I finally get married, then I'll come up with a plan on vacations and how I'm gonna love my wife and all that stuff. It's like no, you have to be diligent with what God has given you. And this is what those servants did. They were careful and selective. That's what diligence means, to be careful and selective. So, so you have to be careful and selective with your time. You can't just spend seven hours watching Netflix. You can't. Like, I know it's hard. You get on Breaking Bad and all that stuff, like you're watching it all weekend. But you can't spend seven hours doing it and be diligent at the same time. You, you have to be careful and selective with what you do with your opportunities. That every opportunity is not a good one. Just because somebody offers you a chance to do something doesn't mean that it's good. Or, and, and it might be good. It might not be good for you. That you have to look at your opportunities as the fortune that God has given you as well. Because you have an opportunity to, to glorify him and to proclaim him and to show people that you know him. You also have to be careful and selective with your money. We already discussed that. Another thing that we can see with, with what the servants did was they faithfully stewarded with expectancy. The master left. And it doesn't say the master left with a promise. Now, Jesus would tell us that he's coming back. He would actually assure us that he's coming back. That after he came up off that cross and they put him in a tomb and he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit, he would show his hands and show his side and eat fish and pop up at cookouts and all that stuff to let people know, hey, I'm alive. It is finished. But before he would ascend to the heavens, he would give us a promise. Hey, look, I am coming back. That what you just saw for the last few days or weeks, that was nothing. It was nothing in comparison to when I return. Because when I return, you, will have to, you don't have to pray anymore that that kingdom come because it will be here. And you will be with me. And it will be the ushering in of eternity. He gives that promise. And, and, and the servants in this story, although their master was gone, they, they, they don't know where he is. They know he's coming back. They're like, yo, it's food still in the kitchen. Like, I know he's coming back. Like, he just gave me $5 million. I know he's coming back. Like, he invested $8 million a month? Oh, oh, he's coming back. So you know what? Knowing that he's coming back makes me want to do something with this fortune he's given me. Like, I don't want to invest well just because I want my kids to have something. Because my kids can blow whatever I leave them. I don't want to invest in building a huge building for a church or a missions organization or anything. Now, if I do that or if God allows me the opportunity or you the opportunity, praise God. But guess what? In 200 years, that building is going to be on the ground. Somebody's going to be using it as an advanced 7-Eleven. The things we do on this earth, they're important. But the investments we make in the kingdom of God... 
knowing that he's going to come back. And whether we are here and we hear the trumpet sound or we are in the ground and we are raised up with him. Those investments are for that time. And having that expectancy in your heart should make you more diligent about what you're doing with what God has for you or he's already given you. Expectancy. But we also see this. You can't have expectancy without hope. That not only did they know he was coming back, but they had hope in his coming back. Now, there is a difference. Not hope in him, in him coming back, but hope in his arrival, like his, his coming back. That they would say, when my master comes back, all will be well. When my master comes back, everything will be perfect. When my master comes back, I will endure pain and sin no longer. They faithfully stewarded with hope in their hearts. Not just thinking about uh, what could be. Or not trying to skim some off of the top and give God whatever he gave us. But these, these people faithfully stewarded. They produced something with what God gave them. And that hope was a sign of their assurance of knowing God. But then the story doesn't end there. The story actually ends with judgment. In the first two, they could look towards judgment in a different way than the last. And point number three is this. Point number three is that the good and faithful will persist in judgment and receive joy. If we go to our text, we can see it clearly. After the first two got good and faithful, the last one, he would approach his master with a demeanor of just being unappreciative, he would slander him. He would make him look worse than what he actually was. And what I can see in this story, this parable, is that as Jesus is telling us about judgment, he's saying that those who are faithfully stewarding have no fear when it comes to judgment. But those who are idle, they have something to fear. A third servant goes to the master. He gives them an excuse. Man, I knew that you were a harsh person. I knew that when he's saying you're a harsh person, what he's saying is I knew that you would be upset if there was a loss. So I was more afraid of loss than I was in, in giving you something back. I was more afraid of loss than seeing growth happen. And that's what most of our lives look like. A lot of us, if we're honest, we're more afraid of losing than we are trying and growing by the little. I told you earlier, this, this, this is a duty. This is, this is a, you get a graded performance. And the text shows us that it's a pass-fail class. 
When I was in college, I hated pass-fail classes. I hated them. Because you, you start the semester, and you're like, oh, this is, is going to be a breeze. All I got to do is come to class every day, post four times a semester, write a paper, and I get an A or an F. But then you get like three weeks out to the, of the end of the semester, you're like, yo, I missed four classes. Like, I might fail. And you start thinking about all the opportunities you had to do stuff, and <laughs> you didn't do it. This is a pass-fail class. You're either faithfully stewarding in your life, and it shows, or you're making excuses and not doing anything, and it shows. And when you stand in front of your master, he's not going to just be happy that you gave yourself back to him. You hear that? He's not going to be happy with that. This narrative that we give ourselves up to God and then we can still live our lives the way we want them and there never be fruit of, of, of us uh, going through anything and changing and growing at all, it's not right. Christ actually speaks against that. He's saying, you can give yourself to me, yes, but if you give yourself to me, there's fruit, there's development, there's growth. There's something that changes. John would say it like this. If you don't obey God's commands, you don't love him. And then he doubles down and say, and if you love him, you don't go against his commands. And then he says it a different way. And he's basically saying that if you are just sitting around saying, hey, I'm not doing this, I'm not doing that, I'm not doing this, but I still believe in Jesus and there's no fruit of it in your life, then this warning might be for you. If you can look at your knife and there's idleness there, and you haven't actually invested in the things of the kingdom, the warning might be for you. Because this isn't a lesson, this is a warning. This is, this is severe. And in that judgment time, the idle servant, the first thing he did, he slandered God. Man, you're harsh. I'd rather just give myself back to you. And the master, it, this, is, this is weird part of, uh, of this parable that gets me every time. The master says, I would have rather you given what I gave you to the bankers. And then I could have at least gotten interest. Like God saying, I would rather you make a bad investment. Like I would rather you like just hand over the investment completely than to not do anything at all. Like, I would rather you have limited activity, like limited activity, than no activity at all. And that blows my mind. But the part that blows my mind the most is that in that judgment, that idle servant is thrown into a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you think about that from this narrative way, what does Jesus promise for us? In the end, in Revelation, it says that he will look at those who are faithful. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. The same words in this parable. It also says that there will be no more crying. 
No more weeping. No more sin. The gift, the gift that the first two servants get is the opposite of the punishment that the other servant got. A part that we don't emphasize in this story a lot is not only did the first two servants here well done, good and faithful servant, they heard these words, enter into my joy. Those servants didn't just receive affirmation and elevation. The affirmation in saying, well done. The elevation in saying, I will entrust you with more. They received also invitation. Come, be a part of my joy. And I don't know if that's good news for y'all, but that's great news for me. In the past month alone, in our small little church plant, 25, 30 people, I've sat with five people who have lost relatives. A quarter of my group has dealt with the reality of death and weeping and sin. And the scripture says the deliverance from that, the reward for faithful stewardship, what you will receive from the produce or the fruitfulness of your life is a removal away from weeping and death and sin and an invitation into God's joy. We think stewardship. We often think, what can we faithfully steward or what can we invest in so that we can give to others? And the final reward is not that we would invest well so God would give richly to us monetarily or with opportunities or with other time or or that he would allow you to do other major things or, or bless you with something internally. But the invitation and reward is an invitation of joy. Do you need joy in your life? If you need joy in your life, if you want to rest in God's joy for all of eternity, this is not a one-for-one formula, but what this shows you is that the fruit of your life will result in the praise of eternity and the joy that you will rest in. Now, I don't want you to hear this as as, as works-based anything, because this is not about the works. This is about the fruit. This whole message is not about the works. It's about the fruit, and the fruit of your life will put you in a place where you will either endure weeping or that you will be in God's joy. The ultimate crown of stewardship is not wealth, it's not fortune, it's not philanthropy, it's joy. That you would have joy as you give. You would have joy as you invest. That you would have joy as you give away. That you would have joy as you sit. That you would have joy as you rest. You would have joy as you celebrate. That your time, your treasure, your talents would all put you in a place of joy because you have knowledge that the master is coming back. That when he comes back, he will open his arms to you. 
Say, come into my joy. For some of us, we have to do some business in our hearts. We have to say, okay, I know I'm a servant. I know I'm a servant. I know I'm a servant because I serve God. There are other people outside of the house that aren't in this narrative. I know I'm a servant. Am I an idle servant or am I a faithful servant? Does what I produce in my life reflect that I am faithful or that I'm idle? And get this, their faithfulness was not based off of a goal of themselves. Their faithfulness was based off of the fact that they knew their master. Do you know your master? Do you know your master? Do you know that God would send that master to live on this earth, to endure every single temptation and sin that you would endure? That he would be able to take that on himself and rest that on his shoulders as he's nailed to a cross that cross isn't a, a, a moment of celebration. That, act, that cross is actually a moment of humiliation. That he would die. He would be raised again. He would prove that. And he would give you the promise of joy in eternity. If you don't know that in your heart, I pray that as we continue, as we wrap up, that you would be able to, to do some work to ask that question, am I even in the house? Have I even been called as a servant? If you are a servant, I, I ask you to do some work too. Question, am I going to fail this course or will I pass it? Does the way I live my life show that I know my master or that I'm ready to slander him as soon as he judges me?